Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of Politicana. Today we are on episode 98. My name is Tyler and of course, as always, I am with Pratik and Nick. So starting with Pratik, how are you doing this week? We're good. Um, there's a lot of stuff going on. I hope everybody's safe from Hurricane Ian. I heard a bunch of rain falling yesterday. It kind of freaked me out, but some people were more freaked out than others. Nick, how's it going, man? Yeah, very glad the uh, hurricane that turned into a tropical storm dodged my house, went straight for yours. So I'm glad about that. I mean, today is pretty nice out. So we got a great group of stories today. Uh, first of all, Lizzo playing the flute has set everyone off. And I got to say, how dare she? So Lizzo is a classically trained flautist and was invited to play the flute, a bunch of flutes, at the Library of Congress last week. The library loaned Lizzo James Madison, President James Madison's old crystal flute, and gave her a bunch of armed guards to protect it for her concert during the week. Now, at the concert, she played a few notes, did a brief twerk, and gave it back to the Library of Congress reps. Now, conservatives are mad saying it insults our nation's history for Lizzo to be playing this flute and twerking. Pratik Tyler... Is this an insult to the nation's history? Is it a big deal? Why or why not? I don't think it's a big deal. They tried to make it all about like how she was like trying to show that James Madison was a slave owner and that's why she twerked. And it was one of those that is very tabloidy. I don't think it's that important. People get all freaked out about stupid things. And this is the definition of that. Tyler, what's your thoughts, man? Funny situation, the fact that she did twerk on stage with this flute. Like, for me, it's not something you get upset about. If she were destroying the flute because James Madison was evil, yeah, I mean, that's an issue. But she just played a note. She had fun, handed it back. Like, I don't think it's that big of a deal. Of course, people are going to be upset. They're going to be uptight. But overall, like, this is a nothing story in terms of impact politically. But to me, it's kind of funny. It amused me. I mean, as much as I hate Trump, I wish he was here to comment on this because he recently called McConnell less than 24 hours ago the, quote, broken crow and also had a nickname for the guy's wife. I mean, we'll get to that story a bit later. Um, Pratik, what's going on with the hurricane stuff first? So Hurricane Ian leaves dozens dead and hundreds in need of aid as the focus turns to rescue and recovery. So basically, with the death toll near three dozen, rescuers searched on Saturday for survivors among the Florida homes ruined by Hurricane Ian. While authorities in South Carolina began assessing damage from the powerful storm strike there as st stunned residents began the painstaking task of surveying their losses. Ian, one of the strongest hurricanes ever to hit the United States, terrorized millions of people for most of the week, battering western Cuba before raking across Florida from the warm waters of the Gulf of Mexico to the Atlantic Ocean, where it mustered enough strength for a final assault on North and South Carolina. The storm was expected to weaken through the day as it moves across the Mid-Atlantic. At least 31 people were confirmed dead, including 27 people in Florida, mostly from drowning, but others from the storm's tragic after effects. So this was pretty tragic. A lot of people died. A lot of people were injured. And we all felt the effects of Hurricane Ian. But gladly, it's gone now. So hopefully we're able to rebuild everything and make it back together. It's the first big you know, storm of the year. I hope everyone's safe. Um, I'm sure you've heard a lot about this in the news and such, so we're not going to cover too much today. But overall, just hoping everyone is uh, safe and well off and we can move past this as best as possible. Forget moving past this, okay? How much funding is Florida going to get to rebuild stuff, okay? DeSantis comes in. He's elected in 2012. You know, he's a fresh new congressman. He votes against the funding package for Hurricane Sandy. Marco Rubio did the exact same thing. 
Do you think now, because Republican states are affected, they're going to be fine with a big spending bill? Or do you think they're going to tone it down? So I think that, I mean, all these things are always like, it's always tabloidy and made out to be something much bigger than it is. But whenever Hurricane Sandy happened in 2012, that's when Ron DeSantis was a representative and Marco Rubio was a senator. At that time period, like the problem was that this package that they proposed, the Democrats proposed for, proposed for Hurricane Sandy funding, had a lot of other crap in it. It's the same as what happens whenever there's a Republican-controlled majority and Democrats want to propose some package to help with aid. They put a bunch of crap in it. Because generally speaking, when you have any aid package bills, people expect it to pass. So they try to funnel in as much stuff in there as they can to that, like their supposed wish list for it to pass. And that's basically what happened at that time from what i read about again 2012 was a very long time ago we've only had two different presidents since that time so i think that time period is very different but i will say like with florida ron DeSantis did a pretty good job handling hurricane ian like this kind of stuff is what's going to propel him to go on further to potentially have a higher chance of becoming president um if he decides to run and you know have his contest with donald trump but that is something to see in the future. But I don't think that we really need to look into that stuff that much because I don't think it's that big of a deal. Over to Tyler to close us out on this one. Okay, well, we're going to move across the ocean over to Russia and Ukraine, as we've touched on many times. But after being encircled by Ukrainian forces, Russia pulled troops out Saturday from an eastern Ukrainian city that it had been using as a frontline hub. This was the latest victory for Ukrainian counteroffensive that has humiliated and angered the Kremlin. Russia's withdrawal from Lyman complicates its international vilified declaration just a day earlier that it had annexed four regions in Ukraine, an area that includes Lyman. Taking the city paves the way for Ukrainian troops to potentially push further into land that Moscow now illegally claims as its own. We say illegally, but they're claiming if you attack it, that you're attacking part of Russia. <clears throat> The fighting comes at a pivotal moment as President Putin is facing Ukrainian gains on the battlefield, which he frames as the U.S. orchestrated effort to destroy Russia. So overall, we have Ukrainian uh, offensive doing well. We hear all these things about the draft occurring in Russia. A lot of people are trying to escape Russia, escape the draft overall. Um, it seems like things are not going well for Russia, but of course, we're not getting the full story. What's your guys take? I don't know if Quebec wanted to withdraw from Canada, as it always wants to do. Let's say, you know, I know they're too proud of the join of the United States, but let's say they did. And we say, okay, cool. We're, we think some stuff is going down in Quebec. We throw some troops over. We oversee an election. And the election turns out that, you know, Quebec wants to secede from Canada. Okay, would that be legitimate? Eh, honestly, in this case, it's totally different. So who the hell cares? I mean, look, you have a war going on. It's not like, oh, this is all peaceful. It's all, you know, just a peacekeeping force. This is an armed military coming in, taking over the territory first, and then forcing the residents to vote on whether or not they want to be part of Ukraine. It's not like this was done in a peaceful way. It's not like this was done in an open way. Okay, there weren't election observers like there usually are. There weren't a bunch of people reporting on it. Sure, there were some videos here and there of, you know, different ballots being counted, some of which were blank which we all saw, but who knows, maybe that's propaganda too. In any event, it's very clear that this was done under duress, and this should not be seen as legitimate on the international scene. Now, in terms of international law, let's be real, we're not international lawyers on this show, but we can always speculate, and so, Pratik, your speculation, 
Do you think Ukraine should just ignore what Russia is saying and just continue the counteroffensive? Or do they sort of say, oh, crap, well, Russia has nuclear weapons. We should probably back off and chill out. Sure, what they did was illegal and we're not happy about it. But, you know, with the risks of uh, nuclear weapons, you know, uh, let's take a breather here. What do you think? I think personally, Russia, Ukraine should just continue its counteroffensive. I mean, honestly, the argument with nuclear weapons would have existed at any point. Like, you, Russia could have nuked Ukraine at any point during that war, but they haven't done it. And I think personally, if I was Ukrainian, if I was a leader of the Ukrainian army or government, I would argue that we should just continue our counteroffensive because Russia has taken stuff that's not rightfully theirs. And we're just trying to fight our way back. And yeah, America has already financed and provided a lot of funding to Ukraine for them to have this capability and opportunity to try to take back some of the land that is theirs. And in the end of the day, there's going to be some peace agreement, but I wouldn't quit with, if I was Ukraine, I wouldn't worry because Russia said they're going to nuke them. I would just continue doing what we're what Ukraine is doing because Ukraine is winning the war. And I mean, for them, no one would have ever expected Ukraine to even be this far along so i think that's good for ukraine i think it's good that ukraine is taking back some of their territory and let's see what happens Tyler, do you have any thoughts on this it's incredible how far ukraine's come in this whole situation i understand like you mentioned that we had given them a lot of funds to support the war efforts but for the first month or so they didn't have any of that and they're still surviving here and not only surviving but starting to thrive here over a half a year into this conflict clearly there are a lot of issues on russia's front but I still think uh, Russia does have the resources to outlast Ukraine. I mean, let's be real here. How long uh, is the West, is the U.S. willing to support this sort of effort? Let's say it continues for a few years. Are we willing to fund that entire thing over that period of time? I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not so sure about that. So if I'm Ukraine, obviously I have to continue fighting. They could have acquiesced immediately. This whole conflict could have been over in a few weeks if they just said, you're right, we're not going to go to a conflict with you. But they made the decision outright that no matter what the consequences, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna defend ourselves and our own sovereignty. And because of that, I don't see them yeah, putting I, I don't think soon. it's really fair to put it on Ukraine, though. I think Russia made the decision to invade. And sure, like you were saying, they could have given in to demands, but... Unlike what most people thought Russia was going to do, which was just demand from the very start that these eastern regions secede and be granted independent autonomous status, what they did was invade the entire country. So even from the get-go, I think they, didn't, they weren't really presented with clear terms to even consider an agreement like this, where I think first it would have been, you know, pretty contentious and maybe they would have come to some sort of agreement, but with the way the war started and with the waves of nationalism just going through the entire country, I don't know how you would ever be able to tell your armed forces if you're the head, if you know, you're the head general, the president of the country, whatever. I don't know how you would ever tell people, stand down and just let the Russians have, you know, a good chunk of the country in the east. I just don't know how you would ever be able to do that and have the troops actually listen to you and do nothing. I think there's already too much momentum. They're winning, and you can't just tell a winning army that now they just have to sit there and do nothing, especially when there's still losses that they're trying to make up for in terms of Ukrainian territory. Maybe they have a relative in the East. Maybe it's just this greater sense of Ukrainian national identity and pride, but I don't think they're stopping anytime soon. So I think the counteroffensive to the, what both of you are saying is going to keep going, and I totally blame Russia for where this has gone. You actually have... 
I think they said some of the it's some of the biggest exodus of Russians from the country in a very very long time. I don't have the exact stat on that, but they said it's basically historic the amount of people that are leaving the country right now. How long will Russians internally support this or even willing to to tolerate this? We know many of them might not support it, but can't speak out that much against it. Um, And they're even being affected abroad, like being able to access other countries. So, Pratik, what's going on abroad? So, Finnish borders have been closed to Russians with tourist visas. So, Finland's border with Russia was closed to Russians with tourist visas Friday, curtailing one of the last easily accessible routes to Europe for Russians, trying to flee a military mobilization aimed to bolstering the Kremlin's war in Ukraine. With the exception of the one border crossing between Russia and Norway, Finland had provided the last easily accessible land route to Europe for Russian holders of European Schengen Zone visas. The government justified its decisions by saying that the continued arrivals of Russian tourists in Finland is endangering the country's international relations and cited security concerns related to Russia's war in Ukraine, the illegal referendums arranged by Russia in parts of Ukraine, and recent sabotage of the Nord Stream gas pipelines from Russia under the Baltic Sea. So... Basically, Finland just shut down Russia. A lot of these Russians may even be trying to move away from Russia. They might be immigrating from the country and they're utilizing their tourist visas that they have. But in order for Finland to try to make sure that they're in good terms with the other European Union allies that they do have in the United States, they wanted to shut down that border completely. So Nick and Tyler, do you have any thoughts on this? Yeah, I mean, I think it's pretty significant. This is a hugely established route that's pretty popular. When I was over in St. Petersburg a number of years ago, I mean, it only takes you about three hours to cross the Finnish border and start going over towards Helsinki. So I think, number one, it's a popular route. Like Pratik was saying, there's a lot of people who actually use it. So this is not insignificant. And two, with everything going on the pipeline this week where you had the natural gas pipeline with holes in it, which you're essentially saying... You know, this is not a naturally occurring thing for this gas pipeline to be leaking all over the place, mostly because the holes in some cases, you had about 100 meters in diameter of gas that was escaping from the pipeline. Okay, it's not like there was a little fish or a bird that somehow gnawed through the piping like this is a pretty big radius to have gas escaping from. So some people think it's Russia. Others think, you know, maybe maybe it's in Russia. They're like, oh, my God, it's the Europeans. They're doing stuff. But I mean, overall, I mean, as things keep getting ramped up and as Ukraine is trying to get fast track accession towards NATO, um, I I don't know. It could very well be the case that more countries start adopting similar things. You've seen public backlash towards Russians in other countries along sort of Eastern Europe. I know we wouldn't really consider Finland to be part of Eastern Europe, but at least the northern parts of Europe have always had more contentious relationships with Russia or sort of these uneasy neutral statuses and to see one of those countries like Finland now closing the border I think is actually a pretty big deal and I think it further isolates Russia as this pariah state where especially after the um, they were sort of waiting for those um, the referendums that we just talked about to take place and I think if that hadn't happened then Finland probably would have kept the border open but because that happened because the rest of the world thinks Russia is this terrible country with Putin as its head as the supreme dictator I think things are just going from bad to worse in Russia. And I think something culturally for the Russians is that's something that's always uh, throughout Russian history is it could always get worse. 
Tyler? Well, if you're going to threaten nukes, I think Finland not only has the right to do this, they have the obligation to do it. And I think more countries should follow because any sort of revolution against this action by Putin is going to happen internally by the Russian people, by the Russian populace. And they're the ones that are going to start feeling the burn. If you're not allowed into other countries, you can't use Western goods. If you want to be part of the international community, you have to abide by international law. And Russia's not doing that, and they should face the consequences of that. Live a life away from the international community. Obviously, you're not willing to participate and negotiate and work with other countries. So why should they allow you into their country? It's perfectly reasonable that they say you're no longer allowed in. I mean, even in America, we had times where we restricted uh, certain nations from being able to enter the U.S. under Trump. So this isn't un uncommon. And I think it, it's warranted in this case. And Europe's a place where they're used to travel. They're used to being able to travel across countries. Across borders relatively easy. I understand that this is a visa situation. But just because you're used to it doesn't mean that you are deserved of it. And Russia, certainly at this point, with this whole conflict and what they've caused, is not. So that's where we're at today. I mean, speaking of that conflict, let's uh, pivot back to what's happening domestically. So the Republican primaries, believe it or not, are coming up pretty soon. They're going to start in full swing just this next year. So as Trump and DeSantis are the big two, uh, Pratik, what, what's going on between them? So the rivalry between former President Donald Trump and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis continues to shape the news as the two Goliaths of the Republican Party have already started the primary without it even beginning. Nationally, in a political morning consult poll out on Wednesday, 52% of respondents said they would vote for Trump if the GOP primary were held today, compared to 19% saying the same for DeSantis. However, a USA Today Suffolk University poll shows DeSantis edging out Trump within the state of Florida itself. Of the future two primary contestants, Trump has also laid out scathing attacks on DeSantis, calling him, uh, wimp, uh, calling him fat and whiny. Also, Doug Hay, a former Republican National Committee spokesperson, called said Ron DeSantis is Trump with substance. So, with Trump doing all saying a bunch of stuff, and what with Republican um, with the RNC saying a bunch of negative stuff towards Trump, it's actually kind of getting heated. Trump also went on to call Mitch McConnell the Mitch McConnell the broken crow, which we'll talk about in the next story. But first, what do you think about this Trump DeSantis battle becoming tight? Because DeSantis still is yet to deliver any personal attacks on Trump, which some of that might be potentially helping him gain traction as the primaries go crow grow closer because at the end of the day like with trump him saying all this negative stuff might not be helping him when some of that stuff of Don ron DeSantis not saying anything is giving him more traction so what are y'all's thoughts on this i think it's clear the mega ideology that trump had created is staying and lasting and DeSantis in many ways has adopted that but at the same time we have yet to see a referendum on trump whether or not we think Trump should be that leader anymore. Just because he created the ideas and the movement doesn't mean he himself should be the one to continue to lead it. So that's what this next primary is going to show. Does Trump have any lasting power? Without Twitter, does he have an outlet, even with True Social? Is it enough to reach enough people to convince them to vote for him? We've already seen in the last election that he wasn't enough to face Joe Biden. 
why should Republicans be confident that he's going to be winning this next election? I don't know that they should be. Um, it's going to be really interesting to see how these two go at it. Trump's obviously going to start calling him names, going to call him fat and whiny, etc. Um, and DeSantis is going to act with a, a bit more of a calm demeanor, not uh, not having as much of an outlashing as Trump is. Um, but it should be interesting at the very least. So I'm, I'm curious to see what happens. Yeah, I think that's the Nick? tone he should end up striking, which is, you know, Trump started the movement. You're piggybacking off the back of it. You know, you can't exactly say, oh, this man is you can't really reach Trump's levels of insult. So I think one thing you can say is like, look, you know, disagree with him. He's, uh, you know, did some good work a few years ago. But, you know, the time for him being effective has passed. You know, we need new leadership. We need someone who's actually going to win. You know, vote for me. I'm going to get an office and kind of continue the ideology, which, you know, you can't say continue the ideology, you know, obviously not a campaign speech. Never hire me, Republicans. But in any case, I think, like, overall, DeSantis, I don't know, man. I feel like this is one of those things where, unlike Jeb Bush, where everyone just assumed, oh, Jeb Bush, oh, he's he's going to be the nominee. Okay, it's one of the Bushes. Jeb, I mean, he's got the Spanish, he's got whatever. He's going to be fine with the Latino vote. That's what Republicans were really courting, you know, a couple of years ago. And then he just gets absolutely trounced. So I think the second you get Trump back on the main stage, back on TV, like, When's the last time I've seen Trump on TV? It's been ages, okay? Like, no one covers him anymore. If they do, it's in passing. And there's never nice things to say. So if you just have a direct pipeline of Trump to the people, I think that at least on the Republican side, he's still going to do well in the primaries because, number one, calling DeSantis fat and whiny, it's just funny. Even though that totally describes Trump as well, it's funny. And two... More Trump than DeSantis. It's like easily... Exactly. It's easily shareable. And I think it reminds people like, oh, this is why I like Trump. He doesn't hold any punches. And yeah, we can see that with McConnell. I think um, when it deals with Trump and DeSantis, as I said, I've said, said this before, DeSantis has to win certain groups that Trump has. And these groups are anything from like even in the northern states of the United States. Like, yeah, sure. Trump has a socially conservative message that definitely, you know, fires up all the socially conservative crowds. But Trump is a New York Republican that benefits him a lot when it deals with the northern states. All the northern states, whether it's Massachusetts, Maine, New Hampshire, Rhode Island, all those states play a big role. In the primary. Generally speaking. Not the general. Yeah, yeah. Even in the general, because even if they don't win that state, you still win a lot of the popular vote and that whole process. And Trump might get certain congressional people and stuff voted into the party, which that's all comes into the dynamics of why a party chooses one person over another. But in the end of the day, especially in the primaries, that's what gives him the edge over everybody because Trump, you know, wins the side. That's all about, you know, we need somebody that's more moderate because Trump's a New York Republican. He wins the sides that are all like, we need somebody that's more aggressive aggressive and then he also wins his socially conservative vote side because even if trump has never really done anything on the socially conservative end he's the one that passed put all these um, supreme court justices in and they're the ones that have been doing a bunch of the shakeups right now on cases like abortion so i think he kind of wins that side but at the same time desantis is the governor and is the republican that you think of right now in the country if there's any legislator that's done anything right now that you can think of like oh 
people who represents the Republican Party is Ron DeSantis. And Ron DeSantis is one of the most like popular governors, if not the most popular politicians right now in the country. If Donald Trump didn't run, Ron DeSantis would be the candidate of the GOP. And I think that's the weird thing here is that Trump, whenever he starts insulting people, it also means that he's kind of afraid of those people. And Ron DeSantis is the kind of guy that Trump should be afraid of, if anyone, because there's no other real like, genuine GOP primary candidates that are going to fight against Trump and have a chance of winning. And even if Ron DeSantis really only has a 20% chance based on current, current polls right now for the GOP primary, that's still 20% more than any of the other candidates really have that could potentially have a staking claim against Trump. So, I think if you look at it from a political perspective, if you take out all of your own personal, if we take out all of our personal opinions out of it, I think the fact is that Trump is in the lead in the GOP primary. He's most likely going to be the candidate of the GOP. However, if anybody is going to give him a fighting chance is Ron DeSantis. And Ron DeSantis has to create enough of a strong message to move away from MAGA a little bit and to create his own branding. Because if Ron DeSantis is the new MAGA candidate, the Republicans that are going to vote for the MAGA candidate are going to vote for the founder of the MAGA candidate over somebody that's going to be the future. I disagree. Based on the polls. He, he's based on the polls. You're right. But he's 44 years old. We, we talk a lot on the show about how there are just all these old people in politics and people are kind of sick of it. We had Trump and then Biden. They're almost 80 years old. Now, I understand most of the voters are older and maybe that it doesn't matter to, to them as much how old the actual president is. But DeSantis being 44 means he actually could be the future of the MAGA party, the new MAGA, a MAGA that is not tainted with all of the baggage that Trump now has. I understand Trump came into office without any political baggage, but at this point, he is so much, it's almost unbearable. And I think it might collapse. It depends. So. But to GOP primary people, if I'm a GOP voter, who do I want? Do I want somebody that I have never seen before and I have no idea how he'll be as president? Or do I want somebody that I felt represented me when he was in office because he was so aggressive and took it to the Democrats? Think about the, all this stuff is, is that if you look at it from a moderate perspective or if you look at it from a Democrat perspective, you're going to be like, oh yeah, Ron DeSantis is the better candidate. Trump is terrible. Trump's awful. He says all these negative things. He says whatever he feels like. He attacks people left and right. But in the end of the day, that's what pushed him to win in 2016 was that was Trump. Trump didn't have any political experience. He did, I guess, as a business person because he probably had to meet with all these people. But apart from that, he never was an actual politician. Now he's been the president. So the old, same problems that he had in 2016, now that's acting as a benefit for him in this um, come around. Because even if like he might not win the general, Republican primary voters don't care about who's going to win the general. They care about who's representing them, in the, who's representing them and their party. And... If they feel that that is Donald Trump, and most Republicans still see Donald Trump as the face of the party, then if they believe that, they're going to vote for the person that they believe represents them better than everybody else has until he's no longer running. So I think well, that's well, a on. very so important Democrats point. certainly don't go with that approach because they had everyone drop out of they're the primary so Biden can win. So. so you're saying that them and Republicans are just fundamentally different in yeah. that regard? Democrats care about who has the most experience. They care about who sounds good, who has the most experience, and who they believe will fight for all the issues that they have. Republicans are different. 
Republicans care about somebody that they believe is going to represent them and not be that loser that that dies fighting and doesn't give a shot and trying to win their case that they want to win. Because Republicans are always true. negatively criticizing the media. So all of this stuff is important because whenever George W. Bush was there, George W. Bush would be criticized and George W. Bush would take it. Republicans don't like candidates that just take punches. They want somebody that can punch back. Democrats have never had this problem. Democrats control the media. They control the you know narrative. They control most of the news stations themselves. They have an advantage that Republicans don't have. I'm not even being biased. I'm just being straight up politically, you know, in that political analysis here. In that situation, Democrats have an advantage because they ha- they control the narrative. So they want somebody that can that's gonna best represent their entire demographics and best represent the diversity that they have and the things that they value. Republicans don't care about that that much. They want somebody that can fight back. So if they believe that Ron DeSantis is going to be a better puncher than Donald Trump, they're going to support Ron DeSantis. But unless Ron DeSantis has some kind of different message than Donald Trump, they're going to stick with what they already have because they know what to expect when they get elect Donald Trump into office. They don't know what to expect when you elect Ron DeSantis or any of these other people because Donald Trump has had four years. Whether or not we like those four years or didn't like those four years, you have something to look at. You're like, oh, this is what happened four years ago. This is what Donald Trump did. And right now, based on the current economy, most Republicans don't care about Ron DeSantis. They're concerned about all the issues going on in the current administration and they're going to say when Donald Trump was there the world was a better place and that's how they're going to vote and the general is different general you're going to have moderates you're going to have independents you're going to have democrats leaning republicans and liberal conservatives leaning democrat you're going to have all that mix but in GOP primaries you have loyalists that vote and loyalists that vote regardless of the DNC and GOP primaries those people want somebody that's going to represent them better than the other people. And that's why Joe Biden won in 2020 within the Democratic primaries. He only had 25 other candidates running against him. We can all criticize how crappy Joe Biden is. But in every single Joe Biden poll that there is, Joe Biden is number one, even now. So I think that's how we have to differentiate regular people and regular Americans from primary voters because primary voters are much more hardcore on their sides and they want somebody that's going to best represent them and best represent the fringe people on their party. I I think you're right, but I also think they take into consideration the fact that they want that person to win the general election because at the end of the day, you can win the primary, lose the election. It doesn't matter that you won the primary. I understand that most people voting are voting for their own values. I want that guy to represent me. But at some point, someone's, I, I'm, I believe people are more pragmatic than that. And they see that, look, it's going to be a waste. Even if he represents me, if he doesn't get elected, it's, it's a waste. It's a wash. So I, I don't know how many people are willing to die on that sword. Maybe a lot are. But and you talk about Trump having like experience. I mean, going back to how he got elected, it was the fact that he didn't have experience yeah, and that people that had switched. experience couldn't get things done. But it switched because now he was there. So I think the same people that doubted him of not having any experience, now they're arguing that he has the experience. Because Well, they're saying he has baggage now because yeah, he did have fair. political experience. But what what I'm saying though is for primary people, you have a scope of everybody. But generally speaking, anybody that votes in the Republican or Democratic primary is not looking at the general election. They're looking at out of all the candidates that are currently in the poll, who best represents me? 
not the party, not the country, who represents me. And that's how they vote. Again, general voters, general election, you got a lot more people. Primary, you don't got that many people that vote. The people that you got voting in the primary are people that are dedicated to the political process. So I think that's the difference to me. But you have some valid points. I just argue that he switched his voters. So the people that were arguing that he has no experience and he's going to drain the swamp, now those same people that were arguing that he has no experience and is going to drain the swamp are arguing that, look, Trump had four years. He definitely drained the swamp. We need him back into office. Or he's in the verge of draining the swamp, so we need him back into office. But those people didn't change. Those are the same people that voted for him because he had no experience. They're going to vote for him now because he had experience. He hasn't gained any voters or lost any voters. His primary voters are probably about the same. And does he gain or lose voters when he attacks Mitch McConnell? I don't think so. But we can talk about that now, though. So Trump launches direct attack on Mitch McConnell a month before the midterm elections. So first off, Trump decides that he he goes to West Virginia, he's talking about what's going on, and then he decides to criticize Manchin, saying that Manchin is representing West Virginia and he's not representing the country in a bad light. He's representing West Virginia in a bad light. Same way, Mitch McConnell is doing a terrible job at representing the country, and so basically he's the broken crow. And then this went on because Trump was decided to criticize him on Friday because there was a stopgap funding bill that passed where former President Donald Trump said that Kentucky Republican Mitch McConnell by support by um, allowing the stopgap funding bill to pass is signing it into assigning a death wish because he's saying that you know whenever I was off in office they had so much difficulty passing these budget bills probably and because they were having so much difficulty well Now, with Mitch McConnell being there, all the Democrats are able to pass all the budget bills and all the bills that they want. So Mitch McConnell is creating a death wish for himself. And then in a Trump Truth Social post, he also mocked McConnell's wife, Elaine Chao, who was born in Taiwan and served as Trump's Secretary of Transportation, referring to her as McConnell's China-loving wife, Coco Chao. So a lot of stuff has happened in this short period of time. And in the end of the day... You're, I mean, with Trump, Trump attacks everybody. He's attacking Mitch McConnell because he thinks Mitch McConnell is not doing a good enough job at representing the party. He's arguing that Mitch McConnell is too, like, pansy for the Democrats. He's not fighting back. He's allowing them to pass whatever legislation that they want. He's not criticizing Republicans that support them in these bills. And he's arguing that if there, if I was back, if Donald Trump, me as the president, I was back into the country, Mitch McConnell would be in line. He'd get him set into line. He'd replace Mitch McConnell. But Mitch McConnell is the reason why the Republican Party sucks right now. So it's all based all of different things. But what the funny thing is that he called him Broken Crow and he called his wife Coco Chow. Well, so Co- do you have any thoughts on Broken Crow or Coco Chow? Coco is her nickname, okay? that She just goes by that on the hill and to other people that she's friends with. So that in itself is not like a pejorative term or anything. That's just her nickname. Um, two, in terms of lambasting McConnell, I think it's hilarious. I mean, Mitch McConnell has been painted as like, oh my God. Mitch McConnell will say like, oh, AOC and these Democrats, the Green New Deal, it's all bad. And now Trump is going, oh, McConnell 
is voting in favor. Maybe he believes in the fake and highly destructive Green New Deal and wants to take the country down with him. He has a death wish. And it's like, the fact that Trump is trying to paint McConnell as this Democrat-loving, Green New Deal-supporting, you know, leftist elected official is complete garbage. I mean, McConnell, going back years, has always been opposed to the Democrats. I think part of it is just things are a little bit more normal these days. And if things aren't going Trump's way, like Pratik was saying in terms of people like people liking Republicans who punch back, this is him punching back. But the thing is, no one's listening and no one punched him first in the first place because he's gone. He's lost. He's out of the zeitgeist. You know, people kind of think about mm-hmm. him here and there, but like, let's be real. You know, as much as he puts on Truth Social as platform that, oh, man, we've got a big rally going on today and people show up to the rest of the country, to the mainstream media, like you said, Pratik, no one cares. Like, people really don't. I mean, they will come election time when it's a big deal again. But for right now, it's like, oh, Trump. He's just doing stuff that Trump does. Let him keep doing it. He's kind of a nuts. Uh, hopefully he doesn't win, but we'll see. I don't know. You're party man. We'll, we'll see how it ends up. I, I for one, kind of hope that he does win because I think he'll lose. Or maybe, you know, maybe he wins, gets back into office, and then extends the term of the presidency to a lifetime appointment. And then I'll be blessed with his presence every single day in a government-mandated loudspeaker in my bedroom. Tyler? Yes. Yes, absolutely. So, I mean, so he calls his wife China-loving. She's from Taiwan. Didn't we just say we would defend Taiwan against China? So that's that's somewhat interesting. She, he's also trying to paint uh, Mitch McConnell as being pro-China there. Another interesting statement. This is just Trump being Trump. This is what we would get every day. You're right, Nick. I do want Trump back in office because seeing this kind of political rhetoric again really gets me going. It really helps me stay engaged with all this content, given that Trump's just yelling at people and calling them names and all that. So I think it was somewhat effective. Um, I think uh, people are listening to Trump that already like Trump. But as we've discussed many, many times, I don't think anyone was converted by this. And I only ever think Trump is losing influence over time. It has dissipated so much at this point. If I if I'm walking around, I don't hear Trump's name anymore. It used to be that I heard Trump's name in almost every single conversation I had. Now it's only when I come on the show because we're engaging in the political aspect. But before Trump was part of the mainstream, he was part of the status quo, and he's just not anymore. He's well, not. He at was that also level. president though, and he's not president anymore. I mean, I disagree with you there. Like he I was bigger Trump, before he was president too. During that's that, true, but he was running for cycle. president, and he was also on shows and stuff. Is he not? Then you know, like all the other right Republicans now? when. Whenever they decide that they're going to run for office, they get kicked out of TV shows. And Trump is the definition of that. But I think yeah, what's but look, important... He was bigger in his first election than he is right now going into this next mm, one. And that's an issue because so. it's hard to trend so. back up in popularity from where you were. He's still he's still number one in all of his primaries. That's like arguing that Joe Biden is on his way out. Joe Biden's not on his way out. Joe Biden is number one in every single poll that you look at for any Democratic Party poll. Yeah, but once the primary process I think the same thing exists with Donald Trump. Joe Biden's not going to no, be a huge once, contender this primary Yeah, season. he will. If Trump he is, will. only if Trump Dude, is genuinely... We can make a like, bet That's on his this. Only, if, only reasoning, and that would be the only reason for the party to ever get behind him. Because it's not like these people are dumb, okay? On the Republican side <laughs> and the Democrat side. At least in terms of the strategists who are actually embedded within the party, they can yeah. see like, oh, wow, look, old men are not popular with voters anymore. 
We, we got to get I, some diversity here. Get a young man in office. You know, that's that's the extent of we, what we can we can make this a running bet on our show, but I guarantee you that is going to be Trump Biden in the next general election, because I don't see Biden getting like not winning in his primaries because he's always up. He can be against twenty people, thirty people. Biden is still number one in all his primary polls. Oh, sure, there are Democrats, younger Democrats, they criticize Biden, that don't like Biden, that think he sucks. And he hasn't really done much to like show that, oh, wow, Biden's the like, greatest president of all time. But in the end of the day, he's up in all his polls. Yeah, and but I think people think he's a one-term Trump. president. Mm, That's the thing. Some people do, but not the people that are polling. And if we look at poll data, because Democrats love to talk about poll data, in terms of polling data, Joe Biden can never lose in an election. He could probably beat Donald Trump again if they were to run again in 2020, 2024, or 2024 based on the current data out there. I think it's important that basically we all know that it's going to be, it could be a Biden-Trump rematch based on polling data. Now, if polling data changes over the next four years, sure, and it might or next two years, but it might. I don't necessarily think polling data is static, but at the same time, Donald Trump has been winning in every single poll, literally for GOP primaries since 2016. And Biden has been winning in every single poll since he decided that he was gonna run for president. Regardless of how many people were there. I think Bloomberg was up one time and then he kind of fell off after some debate. I want Tyler to have the last word on this, but what you're saying, Pratik, in terms of running the numbers on the polls, why even have elections in the first place? I think we should just have the polls, aggregate them together, run a bunch of different scenarios, take the average scenario, and just elect people that way. Don't hey, have a direct vote. Do it. Isn't, do what the UK does. Isn't, just let party insiders, isn't, you know, vote for the head of the country. But I have a question for you. Isn't the election a big old poll? Because you're voting for a party or you're voting for a candidate over another candidate, so you're basically initiating a national poll. If you're going with That's the polls, basically what it is at a massive scale. You know this very well. If you're going with the polls from 2016, Hillary Clinton would have been president. And the polls are right. Hillary Clinton won the popular vote. But in terms of the actual breakdown in the electoral college votes, she lost. She lost fair and square. And polling had a major oversight in terms of disaffected rural white voters turning out and also middle-class white voters turning out and electing Donald Trump as president. So that's something that happened. The polls missed it. They missed going out to these different parts of the country where this is all brewing. They missed the movement. And now they're a lot better, sure. But initially, they were right. They were right in saying that Hillary Clinton was going to win overall because she won the popular vote. But again, that's just not how uh, things went down. You know, state by state, you can have some surprises, and that's exactly what happened. That's fair. Tyler, yeah, you well, any final statements, man? On that, no, you know, we're going to be talking about that much, much more. Trump never goes away. As much as he has declined, in my opinion, in popularity in terms of being in all our conversations, he still does have a lot of influence, and he pops up in the news almost every week. So we'll be talking about Trump plenty. Moving on, though, we got Tesla humanoid robot coming out. Tesla uh, tech billionaire Elon Musk has presented his latest prototype for a humanoid robot being developed by Tesla, his electric car company. A humanoid robot is goes by the name of Optimus, appeared on the stage at Silicon Valley event where it waved to the audience and raised its knees. Uh, the CEO said the robot is a work in progress, but could be in sale to the public in a few years' time. Now, he says that about everything he does, so I would take that with a grain of salt. 
He's clearly trying to market himself. He loves to get investment before he actually delivers product. So that's pretty common with uh, Tesla. Uh, but Tesla's mass market robots will be tested by working job car factories, uh, company engineers say. Musk said the robots would produce in massive numbers and the cost about $20,000 per unit, which again seems pretty optimistic, but obviously I don't know the exact details of this project. They're saying it's going to be three to five years, maybe in 10 years time we'll get this, but it speaks to a larger conversation of we're going to see more automation in the workplace as AI, as robots develop more. Um, they're going to start taking away a lot of jobs. In this case, they're engineering jobs, building cars. In the future, we can move to things like hospitality or fast food or uh, driving cars, self-driving cars. It seems like a lot of jobs are going to be automated away to robots. And when they only cost $20,000 a unit, I mean, that sounds like a lot, but the amount of work you can get for a $20,000 robot, let's say over the course of a few years compared to a human, maybe it's comparable. Maybe that's just a much cheaper expense and you don't have to pay for health insurance and healthcare and all the extra benefits you would have to give to employees um, or, or even treat them with proper respect. I don't know what kind of rights working robots get. But with that, what are you guys' thoughts on this and kind of the trend we're seeing of these AI robots uh, taking over the workforce? It actually reminds me a lot of what Andrew Yang was saying. I know that's no surprise to anyone listening on our show, but with Yang starting his new political party, which we covered earlier in the year, It'll be interesting to see, I mean, he's got to seize on stuff like this. So if there's actually, you know, a factory test, essentially lab scale test of these robots, I think Yang's party is going to end up seizing on that. And sure, in the next four years, I still think Yang is going to get trounced. I don't think his political party has any chance of winning in a national election. But automation goes on long enough, you start to see the actual shifts. I mean, people have been talking about, you know, the automating trucking and whatever. There's so many union disputes right now, all that stuff, even if the technology was here tomorrow, it wouldn't fully take effect. So I think overall, you know, kind of a cool concept. I'm not as afraid as autom of automation as most people are, I guess. I mean, whenever this is framed, it's like, oh my God, you're going to automate away every single job. No one's going to be able to work for anything. And we're all just going to starve out on the street while the robots take control. Um, I could definitely see it. <sighs> Hmm. Let's see. I don't know. I guess in the classical economic sense, it's like, okay, sure, short-term labor disruption, but in the long term, you know, people are going to find new work and new ways to do things. So if anything, yeah. But but that that short-term disruption could be a huge disruption. I, I'm not afraid of automation. I'm afraid of the displacement and lack of a plan to address that situation. And so we see things like climate change, where it's so hard to get groups of people together to tackle these issues before they're at your doorstep, before there's hurricanes every week because we didn't take care of the issue. It seems like the same kind of thing here. To well, me. let me rephrase then. So if this was to be rolled out at every single car manufacturing company all at once, then yeah, it would be a huge concern. And I think you would have a political movement related to it. However, if it's just rolled out very slowly, one plant at a time over like 20 years, I don't think it's going to be that big of a deal. Now, maybe the rate of change, the pace of innovation ends up happening faster than that. But generally, Tyler, like you were saying, Elon just blows smoke up people's butts all the time. So like, really, like the yeah. robot went on stage and raised its knee. Oh, great. Now it can weld things. Now it can put things together. Like, give me a break. What is this thing actually going to do? For $20,000? Yeah. Please. 
And he said, like we've said, he said this about so many of his projects, and many of them just haven't worked out. He gives these timelines so investors are interested. He knows his name's worth that kind of money. They'll invest money. He doesn't necessarily have to be successful for a number of years. So don't be hopeful on the timeline. But we see the technology on the horizon at the very least. And I, I still believe there's going to be some sort of big disruption that's going to impact a lot of people at once. And maybe we take care of that in a few years but it would be a tough few years. And I think it's worth having the conversation now. And I think people like Andrew Yang and those sorts of parties are helpful, at least for having some sort of discussion around it. Um, hopefully it all turns. I'm more worried about the AI front, to be honest. I was thinking with this stuff particularly, I think whenever you have more unions and you have more of these like different groups that are trying to advocate for higher wages and then you have all these like factories that go on strike and stuff, this is just expediting this process. I don't necessarily think that this is benefiting any of the lower income class people if anything with inflation rising at like 40 year highs and you having all these like more automation taking over the workplace you're really screwing over a lot of people and i think in the other fact is that certain businesses only have so much money that they really make so if they're like spending that much more money based on labor and just labor costs and expenses with cost of all the products and everything going up that's going to be it's a major problem right now in the industry so i think whenever you have more robotic things like this and when you have more automation you can already see it every time you go to a walmart or a mcdonald's or most of these fast food or like you know grocery stores or even like you know regular chain stores they're all moving towards automation and moving towards those kiosks so I think that this is the rise now. And I think all of this stuff is doing whenever they start fighting for on behalf of these nursing unions and these railroad unions and trying to give everybody a $15, $16 minimum wage and some places like California, $25 minimum wages. All that's doing is just paving the way for automation to take over all these people's jobs. And then as Nick said, you have the Yang Gang plan that can all like pan out potentially maybe, who knows? But I don't think that this is benefiting a lot of people but at the same time this is really beneficial to business if businesses are paying a lot more to operate their business and they're not getting any more they're not getting a higher return on investment or getting any more sales and like you know revenues that they were getting that much before then this is the way forward and i think if you look at it from a franchisee model like if you forget about all these big old corporations that make trillions of dollars all these franchisees are not are operating on a limited set of income when it costs them more to operate and it costs them more to make any money because it costs them so much in terms of labor and expenses dealing with labor these kind of things automatically change all that stuff and plus robots are so much like more efficient more than likely than people are i think that's sad but that's the fact is that robots can do things much better than people can Half the time, I don't know about those vacuum cleaner robots. They kind of suck. But I think in the future, you will get somewhere on this issue. Yeah, in the, in the future. Right now, robots are not good as humans in most things. But very simple things or things that require like heavy lifting, especially robots are very useful. Um, so uh, for, for me, th this is going to be something we're going to be talking about a lot moving forward, as we've discussed. Um, do we have any final points there? Yes. Okay, very importantly, I didn't think about this. Robot corporate espionage. Think of it. Tesla plants all these robots in GM, Chrysler, Ford, all these different plants, and they have real-time data being sent back. Or maybe it's not real-time. Maybe it's like, all right, the robot is recording the actions it's performing, what it's sensing in its surroundings, and then, you know, you take the little chip uh, from the robot's memory, you download it to some 
you know, central data frame, and bam, you've got brand new corporate espionage through a bunch of robots. You know, as it is right now, you got to find someone, you got to bribe the money. You know, you got. I don't know. What about Amazon Alexa, dude? That's we all put it in our homes and it records everything. Yeah, but I, I doubt. I doubt and... some of these majors are including Amazon Alexas or Amazon Dots. You know, throughout their factory floor, and maybe they are. That would be kind of funny. But it's like the dot isn't actually able to see what's going on. The robots could see. They could touch. They could maybe even taste things. You know, who knows? Maybe they're like, oh man, this uh, this plant is a little sweet today. That I actually learned about that this week. Pretty fun. Uh, oil and gas referred to as sweet if it's got low sulfur content sour or not sour is it sour yeah sour if it's got a lot of sulfur so maybe the uh robots go into sweet and sour factories but anyway that's that's my closing point on that in terms of being afraid of jobs i mean we've got this new story on ev chargers uh becoming more available everywhere all 50 states received final approved approval this past tuesday to begin construction on a first nationwide network of ev charging stations you're going to have one EV charger roughly every 50 miles, one every 50 miles along interstate highways. And the Department of Transportation has sort of triggered, uh, among 17 states of the 50, the release of $1.5 billion in federal funds, or $5 billion over five years, to install or upgrade chargers around 75,000 miles of highway from coast to coast, with the goal of 500,000 EV chargers nationwide. And you've got some plans for these other states. Now, this goes into... This sort of intersects this other story we talked about last week with California banning um, gasoline-powered cars being sold past 2035, and New York State has done something similar. They're saying they want to do a similar ban, and it's going to be ramped up, and it's the same sort of process. They were waiting for California to go first. But one thing I'd like to talk about, and I certainly welcome Pratik and Tyler, your thoughts on the EV charging network. But another thing that gets lost in this conversation, at least mainstream, but that's actually discussed pretty widely in the energy sphere, is car mechanics. So car mechanics are very used to working on internal combustion engines. They're used to working on gas-powered cars. That's the bread and butter, right? EV charging EV cars, you're not going into your traditional neighborhood auto mechanic. One, there's the issue with training where mechanics, frankly, are all geared towards ICEs. So they just haven't had any incentive to switch to EVs or really focus on EVs because there's not that much of them in terms of total percentage of market share in states. Even California, the market share is very low. Um, but two, it's sort of like the, the way these things are structured it's the companies themselves, it's the auto companies themselves where they say, oh, you have to come back into our ecosystem and get your maintenance and upgrades through us. You can't do it through your local one because, you know, we've got patents, we've got all these issues. And I'm sure that people out there have probably heard about, you know, you have to subscribe to like <laughs> unlock your car or something dumb like that. I think there was this guy with Tesla where he got locked out of his thing or it's the same idea as the heated seats, right? Where it's like, all right, we're not selling you a package where, you know, you pay 200 bucks and now you have t heated seats. It's like you're paying a monthly subscription on your heated seats, which is ridiculous. But anyway, Tyler Pratik, what do you think about the EV build out and also what this means for mechanics? So I think that if you don't have, if you have these EV car charging stations, that's going to boost the electric car industry. I think that's the biggest issue that people have. 
like most of us just really care about what kind of car we can buy and whether that car is going to be effective to moving us from place to place. And the biggest challenge that electric vehicles have had is that you can't, their cars don't last that long. So you have to fill them up very like, you know, in a short period of time. Plus they don't go that far. And with the, if you go far away from, you know, your home, you might not have a car charging station. So that's another big problem that they've always had in the electric car industry. And if you're paying $60,000, $70,000 for an electric car, then that's a big expense that you really have to think about. Now, obviously you have Chevy Volts and you have even smaller cars that are being built that, you know, are gonna potentially solve this problem. But at the same time, you are spending a lot of money when you buy a car. And the biggest issue that you have is these car charging stations aren't available. So if these car charging stations do become more available throughout the country, that's going to create more electric cars and car manufacturers are gonna move towards electric cars because that way they can own the battery, they can own a lot more components within the car. And you know, all this stuff about climate change and how the world's dying and all this stuff, all that stuff kind of plays into this thing because the modern way, the futuristic way is already moving towards hybrid and electric cars. And this is this would expedite it if these electric vehicle chargers were accessible and if they were more ubiquitous throughout every single car. Like if I have a Tesla car, will that car work on a basic EV vehicle charger that's available wherever I go? Like these kind of questions are important. And in the future, you're just gonna have cars that are going to potentially become, you're gonna, car manufacturers are eventually gonna just make electric vehicles. So then Tesla and their whole hype is probably gonna die out too. So I think what's gonna happen is that you're just moving towards that path to having electric vehicles. And this kind of stuff is promoting that um, further. And the biggest challenge that electric vehicle companies and electric vehicles being sold has is that there's not these EV vehicle chargers available everywhere. So once that happens, and if that happens, then that's going to change the entire game. But I think we have to see whenever it happens, it says it's going to be in a few years from now that all this stuff gets placed out and put everywhere. So whenever that does take place um, over the next five years, then you will have a major transformation where car companies will automatically start building electric vehicles much more and moving away from gas powered cars. That's my theory about this. I don't really know what's what, the what right a, answer. What about the fact that it takes me a half hour to charge my car at one of these stations? So we're investing exactly. in this in infrastructure that takes, so it's going to take years to build out and it's still going to take me a half hour to fill up. So are, why is a if I'm gonna choose a car, I'm gonna at least choose a hybrid because I don't want to yeah. be so reliant on the option to only be able to fill up through electricity when it's gonna take a long time. It's less expensive, but it takes more time, and people value convenience so much. I think that's gonna be a big hurdle. And so my question is like, did we did we invest in this infrastructure too early on in the the technological cycle? Like, are we far along enough um, to warrant this kind of investment, or was it a fine time? Do you think? Thanks. I think my theory about this is that we're moving towards this process. So what's going to happen is car manufacturers are going to start building their own batteries to be much more faster based on the current vehicle chargers that are there. And that's they're going to create more technology to make their battery better. Again, I have my doubts that it's going to be now. I think it's probably going to be 10 years probably by the time you, you start moving towards there. But the car manufacturers are going to build cars and are going to make them better and stronger in terms of the batteries based on their own research and 
what they can do to try to make their car faster and that they're going to focus on that charging aspect because if i'm paying sixty thousand seventy thousand dollars for a car i'd be a dumbo to buy an electric vehicle but in the same time, if these charge, car charging stations were there, if it's much faster, and if I go charge my car and I'm able to charge it in like five, six minutes like I would a gas-powered car, then like or with fuel up same way then i would potentially move towards these vehicles but i think that's going to be a process and i think the vehicle chargers have to become faster and better the car manufacturers have to create better batteries and the whole process has to be expedited and made much quicker for that to happen i don't think that's going to happen five years from now but i can see that happen 10 to 15 years from now well you could do battery replacements but i know there's a lot of logistical issues with that yeah, I hope they don't end up doing battery replacements. I still go back to this Israeli company that tried that on mass scale and quickly went bankrupt and out of business. Now, sure, they're hubris, sure, they were arrogant, but they're doing the same thing in China and they're sort of rolling it out there. So maybe that was just with that specific mis- business model in Israel. But I mean, we'll see. I think one thing you have to worry about is sort of the inventory there and all that stuff. Um, and oh my, oh my goodness. Just for example, like if you're pumping gasoline out of the ground, okay, you've got this big tank underneath the gas station that you're pulling from, you know, that's one thing. If you have all these batteries that you have where you're hot swapping them in and out, you're going to have to hire a lot more people to work at the actual stations themselves. They're going to have to have more technical expertise and knowledge. You're going to have to have more inventory on hand than you would ordinarily with just you know, the amount of uh, pumps you have and whatever, because it's not like the pumps would go away. This would be an addition to that. It's not like you can just phase out all the current pump infrastructure and say, oh, look, we're going to do only batteries and no gasoline. That's not practical. Um, But two, I don't know. I think something that's very interesting. um, Sure, we've talked about hydrogen a little bit for the light duty vehicle fleet. I'm not so sure. Essentially, you could do hydrogen pellets where you would just have another sort of thing like E85 and whatever. And, you know, if you live in Iowa, you all know all about biodiesel. But who cares about any of that? Biodiesel is a scam, I think. But all of that aside, um, you know, not qualifying any of that. I think this opens up a cool new way of living. Okay, look, you could design and we've already seen this. A lot of these gas stations that used to be pretty dumpy right along the side of highways. Now you've got these like little you know, it's not just a McDonald's. Now you've got kind of this, you know, complex that people go and hang out in and take a little breather. So yeah, if it's taking you like 15 minutes to charge your car, I don't know, maybe you stretch your legs out a little bit more. Sure, it's not as fast. It's not as convenient. That's true. I mean, kind of the idea is that it gets down to, you know, comparable times. That's what everyone's working towards. But yeah, I I fully accept that that is or recognize that that's one of the issues right now which is if you are on the go and if you do have a cross-country trip, then it is going to be difficult to charge your car and it's going to take a while and that'll be frustrating. I can see that getting better over time, but Tyler, like you were saying, uh, at least in the initial build-out, that's not that something they can solve right away. So, And DC fast charging, for example, the level 3 chargers that only take 15 minutes to 30 minutes, those cost more money. So it's like how do you kind of balance the costs of that versus the convenience versus the siting versus deciding which communities get it and all that other stuff to build it out nationally. I mean, locally, it's totally fine. It's not an issue. You just charge it in your garage. But apart from that, when you're planning a road trip, you want to know, hey, I can actually fill up and I'm not going to run out of fuel midway through. And I don't want to sit here for hours waiting for my EV to charge. I'm not going to go to the grocery store like the Whole Foods parking lot and just sit there for hours. Like, yeah, give me a break. So anyway, a little dose of uh, skepticism, but overall, I'm a big fan of this policy. I think it's great. 
I hope they give more money towards it. Hmm. I'm just going to have my humanoid robot take me places, just carry me different places. Um, but no, hey, we got one more story. Pratik, what's going on? So Trump's self-described love letters to Kim Jong-un seized from Mar-a-Lago have been published. So a magazine on foreign affairs and defense issues has released 27 letters, personal letters between North Korean leader Kim Jong-un and former U.S. President Donald Trump surrounding their two bilateral summits. The Chorus Journal, a publication from the Korean American Club featuring work from Korean correspondents stationed overseas, shows 11 letters that Kim sent to Trump and 16 letters that Trump sent to Kim between April 2018 and April 20 and August 2019. In two letters to Trump in September 2018, Kim expressed hope to personally discuss the, Nor- the Norse de- denuclearization with the U.S. president instead of with South Korean President Moon Jae-in and the U.S. Secretary of State. Mike Pompeo. He wrote that he believes Moon's excessive interest is unnecessary, implying that he does not want Moon to be part of the discussions on the topic. The letters were sent three months after Kim and Trump held their first summit in Singapore, amid increased pressure by Washington on Pyongyang to take steps towards denuclearization. So this is something that they found in Mar-a-Lago. I don't really make much of it. It was from the Chorus Journal, which is a Korean-American journal. This was hyped up throughout in a lot of the news stories right now. So do you all have any thoughts on this stuff before we close off the show? Yeah, so I think it's really funny that he said Moon's excessive interest in the fact that the country right above you has nuclear missiles and they can use them at any time. You have no way to defend yourself. Uh, You know, I mean, obviously he's going to be a little skittish about the situation. But what I found really funny was Trump actually had said in one letter that him and Kim had a unique relationship and a special friendship. I thought that was almost gaff-worthy with just how funny it was. It goes to show the kind of schmoozing that Trump does or did in business. This is kind of the person he is. He'll just cozy up to anyone when he wants to try to get something. I just don't know how effective it is on the international stage. I know this stuff is done all the time. I just don't know if this specific method is effective. Clearly, with North Korea, it wasn't. He was basically used by North Korea and then thrown to the curb when they decided they no longer wanted to... Uh, speak to them anymore um, and that's kind of what happened in this situation trump saw himself as being able to get a win by trying to denuclearize the north korea and north korea wanted to pretend like they might actually do it at some point but uh, obviously it was just a ruse they wanted to have some publicity with the u.s to show that they're powerful and they can negotiate with the u.s and that's kind of what happened here it's not like a big deal but like i said it's kind of funny that trump came out and said that i think trump should should have tightly embraced him they should have gone to bed together they could have launched a whole new saga of acceptance around the world for world leaders, just dudes being dudes, men being men, being close to each other, being in touch with uh, their feminine side, maybe. And, you know, I know Trump likes to call people nicknames, so I still remember Rocket Man um, being one of the pretty funny ones. But for here, the love letters, self-described love letters, I think ultimately we can all remember Trump and Kim having a beautiful friendship. And for that, I, uh, I think Putin's a little sad seeing this come out because he wasn't included in the bromance. But, you know, if there's one thing that authoritarian tending leaders love, it is each other. Yeah. It's just two manly, aggressive men just doing their thing. There's a pretty good uh, clip. <laughs> I would encourage anyone to look this up. Uh, Google Trump Big Strong Guys. It's uh, a compilation by Vice News. You'll, you can yeah, thank me later. I've seen that. 
Yeah, Trump's really or into don't big, strong thank guys. Him. No, no, no. He's <laughs> like, oh, I, this before. big, strong guy. He came up to me and grabbed me. <laughs> it's like he's... Yeah. And he says it He says it like a lot, too. It's not like a one-off. It's like there's a compilation of him just saying, oh, yeah, I love like, big, strong guys. He's like, guys. look at this handsome, big, strong guy. <laughs> just every time. Yeah, so that's why him and Kim get along. He loves yeah. that physique Kim got going on. But hey, with that, that's episode 98 of Politicana. Thank you guys for tuning in. We're almost at 100 now gone a long way so thank you all for tuning in and we'll catch you next week later